Amen. Man, it is so awesome to worship with all of you today. Um, and just as I was kind of standing off to the side, uh, hearing that last kind of uh, bridge chorus, um, a cappella, like you guys just singing, man, I am, it's just a humbling thing to hear God's people sing together. Such a beautiful sound. And so I'm grateful for you all uh, here this morning. My name's Austin, um, and uh, we're, we've kind of been in this, this series of, actually we've been in it for a while now, like we haven't kind of been, we've been in a series on Jonah, right, where we've been kind of like trekking our way through this, and this is our fourth week together in our attempt to unfilter, um, like, or, or de-vegetale this story of Jonah, right, uh, which, which we've come to discover is actually a really sophisticated and elaborate book as opposed to kind of the, what many of us have been exposed to through children's uh, stories and media. And so, which I think has actually kind of sort of numbed us to the, just the profound, the profound and powerful impact the story should have um, on our lives as, as God's word in the scriptures to us. Um, so I'm going to take us through a brief recap this morning. And we're kind of going to go quick today because I'm like, I know it's only 10 verses, but holy cow, I am like... This week was crazy because I'm sitting here like I don't know how I'm gonna I don't know how I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this God like these things are too too big to navigate and like I'm coming up here and I'm realizing like there's a lot of tension with this for me and I'm it's coming out in other places I'm like is my fly down like what's going on I checked double checked triple checked I'm good you know so I'm like I'm up here like there's just I can just feel this tension and and I just want to come to a place where where I'm just I'm, I'm humbling myself before God and I'm humbling myself before you guys and like this this is tough stuff. Okay, this is tough stuff. So we're going to go quick today, but I, j- I just ask you to, to, to consider this and, and bring your hearts um, and your minds before Jesus today. So a brief recap. recap. Um, in chapter one, we were introduced to this prophet man of God, right? This, this Jonah guy, this religious man, okay? And his name, his name means, well, he's Jonah, son of Amitai, which means, does anyone remember? Dove, son of faithfulness, okay, some of us, some of us, we're here for that kind of, I talked about it last week too, and, and it's actually kind of ironic, and we're, we kind of laugh at this, we're supposed to laugh at this, because Jonah is the least innocent and like least faithful character in the entire story, okay, and, and then that, that's how the story starts, and that's how the story continues, as it's just this like strange, satirical, comic book-like feel to it, this crazy feel to it. Okay, and so we've got this Jonah who's this religious, supposed to be like prophet, man of God, like just awesome dude. And he's like a complete hypocrite. He's like the worst person in the story. And he actually tries to run from God and his life and the grace that, that God has for him. And the consequences of, of his sin and that, that running catches up to him. Okay, and it literally kind of brings him down. He falls into like a deep state of, of literal and, and spiritual slumber. Okay, and he's just like a relational wrecking ball in the lives of those around him, okay? And so eventually a situation, it catches up with him, right? And it brings him to the bottom, right? The lowest he could possibly go, literally, in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the, of the sea, okay? And last week, Blair kind of took us through chapter two and Jonah's brush with death and what honestly, surely should have been his death, his demise, uh, but was actually rather God's provision in his life, and it was kind of one, of one of these cool moments, and I'm glad Blair went there because that's the, the fish, that moment, in the, it's a severe mercy. It's God's mercy on Jonah's life um, because what was meant to be death actually brings the exact opposite. It brings life. 
Okay, and, and so it's there where Jonah's like mistakes literally can't take him any lower. And it's there where God wakes him up. God wakes him up. And Jonah remembers the truth about who he is and who God is. Um, and then miraculously composes like elaborate Hebrew literature in the belly of a fish, right? <laughs> like the oxygenless, dark belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea, like elaborate Hebrew poetry, like what the heck is going on, right? Okay, and so it's kind of like this, this crazy story. Okay, and then at the end of that, the Lord then commands the fish to vomit up Jonah, and that, like the word vomit, literally in the scripture, and the word for vomit in Hebrew is the word ka, ka. I don't know what you guys sound like when you puke, but if it's anything like that, we're not going to go there this morning, okay? Um, but that's where we will puke up today. <laughs> okay, come on, that's pretty good. Nah, it was terrible. I saw some eye rolls, I think, if I can see anything. But anyway, uh, yeah, we're going to pick up there um, in the story where this is Jonah. This is Jonah 3, chapter 1, or Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, okay? So here we are. Then the word of the Lord, I think I have it up here, perfect. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And just a reminder, when you see the, the Lord there in, in all caps or anywhere in the scriptures, uh, that's, that's God's name, Yahweh, his personal divine name, Okay. And so comes to Jonah a second time, right? This is the second time in the story. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And like, well, what message is that? We already know this message. God, in chapter one, we already know this message. It's, 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 it's right here. I, I think I have it in Jonah. So it's the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amnitai, go and, go and preach to the great city of Nineveh against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay, and so we already know what Jonah's supposed to go and do. And this is kind of like a moment in the story where the storyteller's kind of like, hey, remember? Like, remember? This is kind of what the story is about. Okay? It, it was kind of, it, it was started as God and, and the Ninevites. Then it kind of became about God and Jonah. And now we're kind of back to God and Ninevites. Remember? Remember? Okay. And so um, here we go. We're, we're, God sent Jonah to preach against the wickedness, and, and bring uh, God's judgment, and as we'll read later, um, his anger that threatens to destroy Nineveh, as we'll read later in this chapter, okay? And so, fun stuff this morning, judgment and anger and wrath, Good, great stuff to be talking about church on Sunday morning. This is uncomfortable for many of us. This is uncomfortable. I imagine like most of us don't get like warm and fuzzy on the inside when we read about God's judgment and destruction and fierce anger, and people perishing, right? Okay, if you did, <laughs> that's, that's intense. You're intense. I like it, okay? All right? Um, and so it's uncomfortable to read about God as fiercely ticked off at what humans are doing, and, and, and God then bringing judgment and destruction on them. Like, that's uncomfortable for us. And I partially think it's because we don't have a, a good understanding of the relationship between the Israelites and Nineveh, okay? So that's where we're going to start today. So Nineveh, as we've kind of talked about, is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Um, and it's in, in the Assyrian Empire, like these guys are the worst of the worst. They are the most brilliant and brutal empire that the world has seen up to this point. Okay, like they're awful, terrible people. And like, but even more than that, they were brilliant. Like even to this point, like people study the military tactics of these Assyrian generals because they were just brilliant at strategic expansion. Like, absolutely brilliant. And that's how the Assyrians, like, dominated the world. That's how they grew, sheer military conquest, okay? And their military brilliance wasn't all that they were known for, right? I've said it a couple times, like, they were exceedingly brutal. They were terrible, horrible people. As they would lay siege, 
siege to cities. Like they would cut down all of the trees around the local area and they would kind of turn them into skewers and they'd put them on hills. And it's going to get a little graphic this morning. But like they would then put those people, they would like take the spies or scouts that they would find and they would put them on those, they would literally like just impale them for everyone in the city, the city walls to see. Like they were brutal, awful people. The most brutal empire that the world has seen up until this point. Okay, and so there have been a lot of like archaeological digs in um, in the current city, in Mosul, Mosul, I believe it's pronounced, uh, Mosul, Iraq, which, is, uh, which was once the city of Nineveh. And over the last 150 years, they've, kind of, they've, they've rediscovered the city walls, which has been really neat. They've, they kind of found this like seven-mile-around structure, which is gigantic for that day. It was huge. Okay? And, but on top of that, they've also found the royal palace. And inside of this royal palace, it's really neat what they've discovered. Actually, it's awful what they've discovered, but it's, it's f- fascinating. Um, that inside the royal palace, inside the walls, just lined like um, different art and, and, and statues and, and structures. And, and it's insane because the, just the sheer coverage of this place. And so I have a, I have a picture. This is, this is one of the walls. This is just one. Okay, and so it's a mural. This is one of the murals in there of the whole place. And this is in the British Museum, okay? But this is actually a depiction of the Battle of Lachish, which we find in 2 Kings, chapter 18 in the Bible. Okay, and so this is a battle of Lachish uh, where the Syrians conquered Lachish, uh, which was an Israelite kingdom of Judah. Okay, and so you can kind of see in the next picture that there is, I've kind of circled it. I'm sorry, it's so blurry. That didn't really turn out. I apologize. That is like a, a large wheeled seat, like shielded siege ramp structure that they would take up to walls and just like siege the city gates. Okay, they were, and it was brilliant for this time. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, and then the next picture, this is the brutal side of things. You can kind of see this is what they would do with their captives. Okay, on the right side of this picture, those are captives being kind of directed one way. And then you have these two people that are being kind of grabbed by their feet and they're, they're literally being skinned alive like in front of their, their people as they walk past. Like these are horrible people. And so that's kind of, this is the context that I, that I want to kind of paint for us as we dive into like where Jonah's heading and how the Israelites would feel about this, okay? So verse three, Jonah then obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Um, <clears throat> now Nineveh was a very large city, okay? We kind of already discovered that. It, was, it, was, it would have taken three days to go through it as Jonah writes. And that's kind of something we laugh at a little bit because there's only seven miles around. So it really wouldn't have taken like three days to go through it, but that's besides the point. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Od Arabimyom Nineveh Nepake. That's five words in Hebrew. Five words. And it, it means 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days. Okay? And what do we read in verse 5? The Ninevites believed God. Now, that's, that's interesting, is it not? That's strange, because who does Jonah not even mention in verse 5? Who does he not mention? He doesn't even mention God. He, he says nothing about God in his little five-word sermon. He doesn't mention God at all, okay? He gives them a, a time, 40 days, and he gives them an event, right? Nineveh will be destroyed. And either this is like one of the greatest sermons of all time, okay, or there's something fishy going on here. <laughs> that one was kind of unintentional, but also intentional at the same time. Okay. <clears throat> he doesn't include, why, will Nineveh, why is Nineveh going to be destroyed 
By who is it going to be destroyed? Is there anything that, that they can do to avoid this destruction? Like, and this is just so uncommon for the prophets because they always, they always communicated why God was doing something. And they always gave a way for the people to repent. Okay, they always offered a way for people to turn back to God. But none of that is mentioned here. Jonah's sermon is literally one of the most intriguing things in this entire book, friends. What is Jonah doing? Does, he, does Jonah want Ninevite, or Nineveh to be saved? No. We know this. Like, what, what this is, is, this is like prophetic sabotage, in a sense. Okay? Jonah does very little to ensure the rescue, to ensure the rescue of Nineveh. Would this be consistent with Jonah's character? Yes, very much so, very much so. Okay, now despite whatever Jonah's intentions are, because the author doesn't tell us, we'll talk more about it next week, um, despite what his intentions are, does the sermon work? Does the message work? Absolutely, exceptionally, it works exceptionally. The whole city, the people, okay, we, we read the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from greatest to least, put on sackcloth. Guys, this is like Sin City. This is like the worst city of all time, okay? And like they hear one day's crappy five-word message, like five-word sermon, and they're like stumbling over themselves to repent. Like this is insane. This is wild. This is absolutely ridiculous, okay? And so again, we just, it's, like, it's the book of Jonah. There you go. It's wild, crazy book of Jonah, over the top, comic, okay? And so like the least likely people are responding to God in the most absurd ways. Now, in, what I think is actually kind of profound here um, is we're told the Ninevites believe God. They believed God. How do we know they believed? Well, they fasted and they put on sackcloth, which would essentially be like putting on like burlap. Okay, it's, it's itchy, it's uncomfortable, it's not good, it's probably made of goat skin. Okay, it was, it was awful. But the point is they're ridding their lives of all distractions and comfort and showing God that they're serious. These, these like pagan polythe polytheistic people, right? The least like religious people are doing this. And why are they doing this? We're told it's because they believe. They believed God. Like that's how this starts. They believed God. How do we know that? They did these things. They believed and that is this Fasting and putting on sackcloth is an expression of that belief. And I, and I think to many of us, this might seem rather simple, but I actually think this is, I think it's profound for us as Westerners, as Americans. Like we tend to think of belief as like this, some sort of like mental ascent into something. Like it, you just kind of think like, yeah, oh yeah, I, I believe, yeah, I believe the grass is green because I know, I know it's green. I can see that it's green. Like I believe Notre Dame football is like the greatest football, you know, of all time. Okay, greatest football tradition of all time. Okay, everyone's laughing at that. Okay, but I believe it. All right. Okay, and so like, and so, right, do, do you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, okay, cool. Like, I believe it. Done. And so we kind of take this mental idea, and what we do is, like, we kind of impose that onto the Scriptures. And what the Scriptures try to get us to do is just kind of redefine that whole concept. Okay? Because what happens here with the Ninevites, okay, is, is that belief is not this mental ascent here in the Scriptures. Okay? It's not. How do you know they believe? By their response. What do they believe? What do they believe God ab about? We, we don't know. Despite everything that Jonah left out, we do know that they believe something about who God is because, and, and God's like rendering judgment on them in a way because what they once thought was right, they're now showing that that is wrong. 
and they're fasting, and they're putting on sackcloth, okay? And because it leads them to this choice of trust, this, cho- this judgment leads them to a choice of trust. They can choose to believe their own definition of good and evil, okay? Or, or they can accept this judgment on what is good and trust a new definition of good and evil, okay? And how do we know they trust it and believe it? It's their life response. They fast and put on sackcloth, okay? Like I said, the, 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 in the Bible, belief is not like this mental ascent. It's a life response to what you believe. Your life response shows what you believe. And I think this is really important for us to hear today. This is why I think it's profound. Because I think we live in a, a Christian culture where the, the response to, do you believe in Jesus, is sure, totally. Absolutely. Like, he was a real dude. Yeah, I, I believe God rose for me. Yep. Check. Said that magic prayer. Check. Said it twice. Double check, you know, because I had to do it twice. And it just becomes a sort of box that we just check off, right? And, and, and there, might, there might not even be a shred of evidence in your life that you even care about Jesus or how Jesus cares about others or how that should affect your thoughts and your actions or how you should respond to these not-so-good things in your life that need to be responded to, that you need to take action for. And so the scriptures kind of come alongside us in this moment, and, and sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently, right? They offer this idea that, hey, if there isn't a shred of like any of that going on in your life, then you don't believe. And it's not a slam. It's not like a dig at anybody. I actually think it's really helpful. I actually think it's really helpful for us because nobody is doing anybody any favors, okay, by letting you think you're a Christian when you're actually not. Like, let's just be honest here. Okay, belief is something that is so much more holistic. It's a life response. They believe and then they express that belief through action, showing that there is something going on inside of their hearts that shows up in their lives. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 6, the king's response. Okay, when, Jonah, when, the, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. Okay, and if we're just going to stop here, we're like, okay, this is probably not good. All right, this is the biggest, baddest king in all the land, and he's rising from his throne. Like, something not good is about to happen, but it, it keeps going. Okay. He, ten, he then takes off his royal robes, and he, co- he too covers himself in sackcloth, just like everyone else, all of his people. And he, does go, he goes a step further, and he sits down in the dust, which is symbolic of regret and remorse. Okay. Lowering your place to the lowest of lows, to the lowest you can go. Okay, and then he gives this proclamation. He says, this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, <laughs> and we, we'll get there, herds or flocks taste anything, do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Okay, and like we really should have a little laugh emoji right here because again, this is kind of one of those moments in the story where like the literal word for animal there is cows, cattle. Like, like the king is literally making Bessie repent too. Okay, and so we kind of like chuckle at this. We're like, what, is, what did Bessie do? Bessie didn't do anything. Bessie's doing her thing, eating, eating grass and making milk, you know, whatever, whatever cows do. Okay, but it's just showing us that there's just such this intense change of heart going on that they want to cover all their bases. They want to cover all the bases. And so, yes, even in Nineveh, the cows are repenting, okay? Even in Nineveh. So, and he keeps going. And let us, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? 
God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And so there's this crazy change of heart that happens, right? And it happens in the, in the people and in the king and in the, in the cows, okay? And then there's this, they repent and there's this word that's used here, okay? It's a, it's a key phrase here that's used commonly throughout the scriptures and the prophets. And it's, we find it in verse 8. I think I underlined it in verse 8. Okay, perfect. Yeah, let them give up their evil ways. Or if you, if you have your Bibles and you're in the ESV, it's let them turn from their evil, evil ways. Um, and the Hebrew word that's used here is the word shuv. Shuv, like shove, but, but not. Okay, shuv. Okay, and shuv is this image that they've, that's like, it's like walking, and it literally means you're walking one direction, okay, and, and then you shuv. Shuv. Okay, you're, you're turning direction or, or you're turning back like you forgot something at home or you remember that you forgot something at home, okay? And so it, it's, it's symbolic of you, you turn down a wrong road and you realize that you turn, like there was judgment there in that moment. You're like, oh, the GPS is yelling at me or my wife like slapped me out. What are you doing? Is, this isn't the way, you know? And then you shoo onto a different road, right? You're like, oh, shoo. okay? Kind of one of those things. Like, I'm going to totally start using that now. That's, that's, total, that's going to happen. That is going to happen. I'm going to start using that while driving. Okay, so it's, it's, and what shuv is, is it's metaphor. It's a metaphor. The prophets kind of pick up this word and they turn it into a beautiful metaphor of, of that everyone, life is on a journey. Life, or sorry, everyone in life is on a journey. And in this journey, you take roads, you take paths, you drive down certain streets, and sometimes you turn down streets uh, that you aren't supposed to go sometimes you go the wrong way, the wrong direction, okay? The road, a road that doesn't lead to life, that doesn't lead you ultimately where you want to go, okay? And it's going to, what, actually what's going to happen is going to lead you to, more metaphorically, lead you to ruin and the ruin of others. And so the prophets would tell you, you need to shove. You're going the wrong way. You need to shove. And the right response to that, that judgment, that right, a prophet saying, you, that's judgment, the right response to that judgment is, oh yeah, you're right, like I, I do, I need to shoot. okay? Is that like a dance move that I'm starting now? I don't know, but I'm afraid I'm going to start seeing this on TikTok or something. Okay? Anyway, so like here you have this horrible, awful, terrible king um, calling his people to do, like, to shove. He is the one that is recognizing the judgment placed on them and calling his people to do this, calling his, these people to turn and repent. Not Jonah, not our prophet man of God. He said five words in Hebrew that had nothing to do with repent. Okay, now we'll go, I'm going to go back to verse 9 real quick because I kind of imagine this verse is not, not a verse uh, that's in your entryway or framed in your living room, right? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Is that a magnet on anyone's fridge? No, okay, I didn't think so. All right, we tend to struggle. We tend to struggle with these ideas about God and how he's, he's fiercely angry with us and that we might perish. And so we wrestle with ideas, with these ideas of God and his wrath and his judgment and his anger. And like, I just want to take a second to kind of camp out here for a bit because this is uncomfortable. There's tension here. But this is what this passage is about. God's judgment on human behavior, declaring that it's wrong and that people need to shove. Okay, and I get like this isn't like a popular idea, like this isn't what you, we want to like come to Sunday morning and like have a great time and hear like, hear, you know, this awesome like inspiring message, right? Okay, but like this is Jonah. 
This is the book of Jonah. This is God's word. And so it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a comfortable topic to talk about, but it's one that I think many of us don't have a very clear picture of, okay? And I think, I think why many of us struggle with it is, is because we struggle with how to balance or connect the different attributes of God's character, more specifically, the ones that just appear to be in contrast with one another or contradict each other, right? Okay, and so like God's judgment, we see riddled throughout the, the Old Testament and the prophets, okay? And then, and then on the flip side of that, we see God's love, Okay, we see God's love that Jesus talks about that we see in the New Testament, right? I mean, in 1 John, it says what? It says, God is love. God is love. And so we struggle with how to put these two together. And I think what happens to many of us as we try to balance these ideas, we tend to kind of fixate on one over the other. And then even more than that, I think one of the biggest traps that we fall into is the idea that we, we, we make these two opposites of each other, Right? It's not, it's not loving, it's not the loving thing to, to judge someone. A loving God shouldn't condemn someone for their behavior. Let's think about that for a second. What am I really saying if a loving God wouldn't judge and condemn humans and their behavior? Would it be the loving thing for God to do as he looks over, right, as he, as he, as he kind of takes, takes inventory of the world and his creation? Okay, would it be the loving thing for him to do uh, to just kind of, just kind of overlook. Over, like, for us, it's really easy. Like, we, don't, we don't have to look far. As, as humans, as, like, we don't have to look far to recognize that the world is the world's screwed up. What's, it's not good. Like, we're, it's not in a good place. We can recognize that. So can the creator of the universe. Okay, and so would it be the loving thing for him to do as he, as he overlooks and sees all these horrible things, like the things that we do to each other and, and to the world, and would it be the loving thing to do if God sees that and just says, just says, oh, those humans, I love. What a misguided bunch they are, but I love them, so I'm just going to overlook this. Like, would that be the loving thing to do, to just overlook oppression, genocide, just evil, pure evil, and, and, and just say, and make a statement like that. I don't think so. I don't think that would be the loving thing to do, to simply overlook the mess that we've made in this world, the way that we mistreat others made in his image. I would argue that it's actually not the loving thing to do, and it's the opposite of, of, of loving. The opposite of judgment isn't love. It's apathy, friends. It's not caring. It's seeing anything and not doing anything. Or it's seeing everything and not doing anything. For example, like at WSM, Waypoint Student Ministries, okay, let's say, let's say I witnessed some freshman picking on a sixth grader. Would it be the loving thing for me to do to, to just say, yeah, you know, boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. I, I, I can over, they'll, get, they'll figure it out, right? I'm just going to overlook that. Would that be the loving thing for me to do? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That would not be the loving thing for me to do. And I've had parents say that to me before. Oh, boys will be boys. Kids will be kids. Boys stay boys, if we can just change that in that, in that sense. Okay, that wouldn't be the loving thing for me to do. The loving thing for me to do would be to render judgment in that moment on that behavior, to tell those students that what they are doing is wrong, what they're doing is wrong, and they need to change because they're going to ruin their lives if they keep doing this stuff to people. 
And so rendering judgment in that moment is, is not the opposite of love, but perhaps the most loving thing that I can do in that moment, because in the moment, I am loving that sixth grader. I'm loving that, that victim. I'm loving the rest of WSM by, by not letting that set a precedent for the rest of, of the student ministry. And I'm also loving those, those freshmen by reminding them, hey, if you go down this path, if you go down this path, you're going to ruin your life. If you continue to treat people this way, you're going to ruin your life. Judgment. Judgment in that moment is actually the loving thing to do. And I think we've just kind of become sloppy in our thinking about this and sort of two-faced, and I'll, kind of, I'll get there in a second. But like, we can agree, the world is not okay. And it's not okay because we're not okay, and the way we treat others is not okay. All right? And so for God, who loves his people, made in his image, and to protect the world that he's in, he must render a judgment. Must render a judgment. And I actually think that we want this. I, I do believe this. I actually think we want this. We want a world where there is justice, right? We want to experience a world where wrongs are made right, right? Where there's a God who actually holds human, where people are held accountable for their actions. And there's a God that holds human beings accountable for their, for their horrible, awful things that they do, okay? Because if there's not a God who holds us accountable, then we are accountable to ourselves and our culture. And what you end up with is the Assyrian Empire, right? Where might makes right, essentially. That's what we get, okay? If we don't believe in a God of judgment, then there is no hope for our world, friends, okay? For the hope of all wrongs being made right and is, is, is the hope that we all want to believe in. For the hope of a restored creation to occur, there has got to be a God of judgment. There has to be. And then like on the flip side of this coin... If there's a God of judgment, okay, there may be hope for the world, but there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me. Because me and you, we are notoriously two-faced and hypocritical, or I guess I'll just speak for myself. I know I am. I've really struggled, honestly, like preparing and teaching this, this book on Jonah, um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that as I've been working through this and, and teaching this book, that I, I just continue to find myself running into, like coming face to face with my own pride, my own apathy, my own hatred and complacency and self-righteous hypocrisy. Like, like that's me. And quite honestly, like I've got no right to, to be up here teaching about this stuff. But the reality is, like neither of us do. And someone has to teach on Jonah 3. Right? And so, we, we, so we, we've got to talk about this. Someone's got to talk about this stuff. And so I guess the easiest example in my life, I mean, it's, there's a lot, um, but it's got to be when I'm driving, right? We're just going to go back here. It's such an easy one. Driving is such a, it's a good example for everything. For all, We become the worst people when we drive. I'm pretty convinced of it. Okay? And so it's sort of like when someone cuts me off, right? When someone cuts me off, and especially, this is horrible when Morgan's in the car with me. Oh, my gosh. It just makes it, like, that much worse. Okay, like when someone cuts me off or they don't use a turning signal, right? Or when they, or really just anything that kind of annoys me or causes me to drive more cautiously, like that bothers me. And all of a sudden I just, I get really concerned about justice, right? Like, come on, look at this guy. Is he serious? What is he doing? You've got to be kidding me. No way, buddy. Uh-uh. Anybody? Anybody in there? Okay, we're laughing because it's true, right? You know, we all have it. like, look at that cop speeding. Come on. They're just allowed to do that. All right, Tim, I know, I, I had to say it. Okay. We talked about that. Tim and I, we've talked about that already. Okay, him, we're, we're buddies. Okay, I had to. All right. 
But you guys know what I mean. And, and so it's like we kind of we sit here and we respond like that in the moment, okay? And then, and, and then when we mess up, when we mess up, we're like, oh, come on. I had to. I had to get over, right? Like, like I, I was going to miss my exit. You know, I'm running late to work. Like, oh, come on. Come on. Who are you? Don't judge me. Who do you judge me? Okay? And like, this is just an easy example, but we all do this. We all do this. We all want justice and judgment, except for when it has to do with us. Then it's not okay. Don't judge me. You don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the experiences of my life. You don't know my story. This is exactly it. We're really concerned about justice and when it impinges on our circumstances and comfort, but the minute that the spot is turned on me I no long, and I no longer get to define justice or, or what's good and evil or good and not good, okay, and I don't like get to conveniently excuse my misbehavior, like then, then we get defensive and you're like, who are you to judge me? Okay, and so the core issue of this, the core issue of this is that if there is a God of judgment, if there is a God that defines good and evil, it's not me. It's not me. And you know this is an issue when, you know this is an issue for you, I know this is an issue for me, when I say, I believe, I believe it's good to forgive. I believe it's good to be generous. Meanwhile, I spend like all my money on myself and like I have three relational like just bridges burned in my life because of someone I couldn't forgive, right? And then when that gets exposed, we don't like that and we're so two-faced about it. We're like, don't judge me. But yeah, it's good to forgive. You should, you should totally forgive that person, Right? And then when God renders a judgment on our behavior, when things are exposed, like that we totally thought were good and okay, and now they're not good and okay, okay, we don't like that because then it exposes us and it challenges us. And ultimately, we get to a point in our lives where we've got to make a decision. We've got to make a choice to trust in the judgment of good and live, live in that way that God calls us to to trust in his judgment, in his definition of good and evil, and to respond to that, to shuv, to turn. And more often than not, when God's judgment comes to us, it comes very unwelcome. Full transparency, like there are things, there are things in my life, there are things about, about even Christianity in general that are diff- difficult me, for me to accept God's judgment on. But that's why it's an act of faith. That's why it's, it's, it's belief in me when I choose to trust that God's judgment on what's good and not good is superior to my own, okay? Even when something doesn't resonate with me to say that's, that's good or that's wrong, I by faith trust someone higher than myself because who am I? I'm a two-faced driver that gets ticked off at cops speeding when I don't even, I, they could be very well speeding without their lights on for good reason, right? Like who am I? I'm a two, like that's me. And so what does God do with this judgment on us, right? What does God do with this judgment on the world? Well, if judgment is this expression of his love, which I believe it is, I believe they're two sides of the same coin. So if judgment is an expression of his love, what does he do with his judgment? Is it to smash us? To destroy us? To bring us to the dirt? To wonder if like God's ever going to forgive us? We're going to finish out this chapter here. Verse 10, when God saw what they had did and they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring onto them the destruction he had threatened. Band, you guys can come on up. When God's judgment is an expression of his love for the Ninevites, 
and the Israelites and, and everyone and so on, okay? When he renders a judgment on their behavior, okay, and he's saying that's not good, like they and they shuv, they turn from their ways. What did the Ninevites find? What does God do? In verse 10, he relents. He relents. And we have a wonderful word for this in the scriptures. It's called grace. And that's ultimately the goal of God's judgment. Out of his love, he renders a judgment on our behavior so that when we shuv, we find grace. We find grace. God's not out to destroy us, okay? He's out to show us that the way we're going is wrong and that we can turn and find grace and find new life, a new path, the way of Jesus. All right, and if the story ends here like it does with many children's books, like some of them that I've read, like it literally just leaves out chapter four, okay? But it doesn't. It, it continues going on, okay? If the story ends here, is it a happy story? 100%, happy story. Like, yes, the Ninevites repent, it's good, all right, we're great, happy, good to go. Okay, but it doesn't end here. And it doesn't end here for us either, okay? What are the odds that the king, in verse six, stays off this throne? Stays off the throne in Nineveh. What are the odds? What's your track record of staying off the thrones in your life? I know mine. It's not good. It's not good. But the good news, because there is good news for those of us who shoot, the good news is that without a doubt, without a doubt, there is grace in the gospel of Jesus, in the story of Jesus. You guys, what we have in this story of, of Jonah chapter three is literally a story of a king who rises up, makes a judgment, says what we're doing, the way we've been living is wrong, and he takes off, he, he rises from his throne, takes off his robe, takes everything that gives him the authority to, to call good and wrong, or good and evil, right and wrong, and he humbles himself. We too have a king rose from his throne, removed everything that gave him the authority, came to the muck that is humanity, humbled himself, became the least of these, lived a perfect life, took the judgment of humanity to the cross so that grace and love would have the final say. And we have a choice to respond to that. And so I would encourage you, in these last minutes, it's been, it's, it's, we talked about a lot, I get it. But this book, it's heavy, it's thick, there's a lot to it, it's dense, and it's going to take some time, so I'd encourage you guys to read it this week and then to consider the thrones in your life. And then can I just encourage you? You're going to step on and off those thrones for the rest of your life. Like, it's, it's going to happen. Day one of becoming a Christian is, is recognizing the judgment on your life and placing your faith and trust in Jesus and choosing to, to, to recognize that, that there is a higher way, that there is a... a a higher definition of good and evil that we can trust and then to, to accept that grace and that love 
and by that grace be changed. And I think what you'll find will happen is that those, those things, you, you'll start to recognize, man, that way, how I used to act, that was so wrong of me. And you just become more aware of these things. It's like you begin to wake up. What are the thrones in your life? What are those things? And where do you need to shoot? We're gonna, I, I just encourage you to think about that stuff as we enter into this time of worship.